Revival is not something to be taken lightly. Over the history of our faith, we can point to many instances of genuine revival amongst communities of faith. As diverse as the specific instances may be, there are generally similar circumstances surrounding these occurrences. Hunger for God, desperation, stagnancy in the faith, adverse situations, all that to say, is there any reason why revival couldn't happen now? Join us today as we continue our series called Revival Stronger Than Ever. Life has its ups and downs. Life can be fun. Life is sometimes hectic. And life is full of choices. Welcome to Venture, the podcast that brings the biblical truth to the ventures that we face in this world and live in today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Venture Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Wills, lead pastor at Venture Church in Bellevue, Nebraska. And as always, so thankful that you are joining us today. Uh, we believe wherever you are listening to this, God has placed you there for a reason and a purpose. And we are praying that he will give you uh, why, the reason and purpose of why he has you where you're at. So I want to start off, first of all, saying happy Father's Day, a little, little belated, uh, but happy Father's Day to all those dads out there. Uh, continue being great dads and leading our children and our young adults and maybe even our older adults in uh, great ways, leading by the example of our own father, uh, God himself. So happy Father's Day to all you dads. Uh, so I have some good news and some bad news for you today. Uh, the bad news is, is that our world is full of bad news these days, right? <laughs> the good news is our world has always been full of bad news, and bad news never prevails. One of the worst moments in our nation's history happened on December, December 7th, 1941. That's when the Japanese Navy attacked the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, killing 2,400 Americans and disabling almost all of our uh, battleships. Uh, that was the bad news. The good news was our three aircraft carriers were out on maneuvers at the time, so our carrier fleet was intact. Six months later, that carrier group destroyed five Japanese carriers in the Battle of Midway, and ultimately we won the war. And history is like that. You wait long enough and good, good news always triumphs over bad. For example, on Good Friday, our Savior died. It was the worst news in history. And three days later, he rose again. It was the best news in history, right? And on top of that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, and he launched the church. Bad news is always followed by good news because the forces of good in this universe are stronger than the forces of evil. A scribe by the name of Ezra knew that. He and his people were emerging from a national crisis. They needed some good news. They needed some hope. They needed some inspiration. They needed some reminders that their great God works all things together for, for the good of those who love him. And so Ezra writes stories, real-life stories with real-life lessons. One of those stories was a really bad news to good news story that involved mayhem and, and murder over three generations. During its worst moment for, for seven years, the people had no, no hope. Uh, we have been wrestling with hope for months now, right? 
uh, in our country and in this world. You know, ever since kind of COVID um, kicked in and we've had all kinds of things, it seems like happening, right? Like just so many people the last couple of years I talked to have lost hope, you know, because of the virus or the economy or who, who's running for office or whatever, right? Uh, and, and here's the deal. Ezra's people wrestled with it for decades, and we've only been really kind of struggling mainly for the last couple of years, maybe even a little longer for some people. So how did they cope? How did God rescue? And so that's the story I want to tell you today. And so I hope you're ready to do some learning today. If you can, I would love for you guys to open your Bibles up to First Chronicles 17, uh, starting with verse 10. And we're, what we're going to read takes place during the reign of King David. Uh, and one day, uh, God says this to David. And I'm reading from the NIV today, again, First uh, Chronicles chapter 17, starting with verse 10. Here's what it reads. Uh, actually, I'm going to read about halfway through verse 10 where it has the quotation marks in it. It says, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as long as, it t- uh, long as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. There are two promises in this passage. One is that there would always be a descendant of David ruling over the nation of Israel. The second was that one of those descendants would rule God's kingdom forever. In other words, that the Messiah, the forever ruler, would be a descendant of David. Throughout the Old Testament, there were prophecies that one day the Messiah would come. From, the, from this day in First Chronicles chapter 17 and onward, everybody knew that when the Messiah came, he would be a descendant of King David. The Israelites knew and Satan knew. Satan is not all-knowing, but he is exceedingly crafty and creative. And when this prophecy is given, he is clued in that the Messiah must come from the lineage of David. Satan knows that God must be true to his word. He, he knew, knows that if he can extinguish the line of David, he can prevent the Messiah from coming and saving mankind from our sins. In 841 BC, Satan sees and seizes a strategic opportunity to eliminate the line of, the da- uh, of da- David. Now, Fast forward there from, uh, from there about 150 years to the time of King Jehoshaphat, which we talked about in last week's episode. Uh, during the course of his reign, uh, King Jehoshaphat made what seemed to him a decision to secure an alliance with his greatest threat, which was the kingdom of northern Israel. Back in those days, a common way to seal alliances was for two kings to marry their children to each other. In this case, Jehoshaphat married his son Jehoram to the kings of Israel's daughter, who was named Athaliah. Okay? Now, follow me carefully for the next few minutes, um, and, and we'll learn a lot of important lessons that could save you and your family a lot of heartache over the next 30 or 40 or even 50 years. Okay? So, imagine a map of the Mediterranean uh, in your mind. The, you have the Mediterranean Sea, right? This big body of water. The nation of Israel sits on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. At this time in history, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, right? We've talked about this in the last couple episodes. 
the northern kingdom is simply called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. The northern kingdom was ruled by a king named Ahab. The southern kingdom uh, was ruled by Jehoshaphat, okay, which we talked about, like I said, last episode. But in order to secure Ahab's northern border, Ahab married the daughter of the king to his north. That kingdom was called Sidon, S-I-D-O-N. Its king uh, is, was named Ethbal, okay? E-T-H-B-A-A-L. The word Eth, E-T-H, means with. Anybody want to guess what the word Baal means, B-A-A-L? That word, Baal, means Baal. <laughs> Baal was the fertility god of the Canaanites, okay? Ethbal was with Baal. So what his name, what it meant, okay? He was a worshiper of Baal. Ethbal's, Ethbal's daughter was named Jezebel. You may have heard of her before. She is infamous for worshiping Baal and corrupting pretty much of all of northern Israel during the time she was its queen, okay? Ahab married Jezebel. Together, they had a daughter they named Athalia, Athalia, okay? Meanwhile, Jehoshaphat and his wife had a son they named Jehoram to cement their alliance. Ahab and Jehoshaphat married their children to each other, okay? Now, I know that sounds like some reality TV show, and you might have lost track where everything is, but that's how they came together. And this meant that the wife of the crown prince of Judah was not a follower of Jehovah, but a Baal worshiper. Everything went along fine until one day that Jehoshaphat died, and on that day, Jehoram became king, and Athaliah, Athaliah became queen, okay? You'd like to hope that the story goes and they all lived happily ever, but we know that the world is, is full of bad news, and that happily ever afters only follow not-so-happy disasters, right? Kind of have to have the, the, the bad, and then comes the good to where you live happily ever after. Well, Jehoram's first act as a king was to do what no Israelite king had ever done, but what most pagan kings from places like Sidon usually did, and that was this. He killed all of his brothers so that none of them could threaten his throne or right, the right to his throne if he were to pass, okay? So this all happens about 20 years before our story, and I call this the law of unforeseen consequences, okay? Because if you marry someone who is potentially dangerous, you might not foresee that, that something dangerous is going to happen. And it's not just in marriages that could be in any relationship, right? So Jehoram has eliminated all the competition. Now there's only one direct descendant, and that's him, him Jehoram, Jehoram, okay? Along with all the sons that he also will give birth to over the time would be the next in line, Okay. Well, later on that same year, 841 B.C., Jehoram died in battle. And Ezra's comments on this in 2 Chronicles 20, chapter 21, verse 20, he says this. This is, this is amazing to me. He died to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Why did they do that? Because he was not liked, okay? Because he, his life did not merit a kingly tomb. It did not go well. He was a pretty much a bad king, so they didn't want to honor him as a king, okay? And then often when a king dies, his kingdom is vulnerable, right? Because the neighboring nations know that the new king will be young and inexperienced. So that's, that's when they like to attack. And so this attack happens. Judah is invaded by her neighbors. They, they carried off all the possessions found in the king's palace and also his sons and his wives, okay? Not a son uh, sorry, not his wives, but his son's wives, okay? Also, all his sons and, and their wives. Not a son was left to him except 
uh, Ahaziah, um, his young son, okay? And then there was one, which is him, okay? Ahaziah. Um, Here's where our story officially begins. The kingdom and the messianic line are hanging by a single thread, okay? So our story for the rest of the time is from 2 Chronicles chapter 22 and a little bit of 23, okay? So uh, if you can turn to that, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 22. I'm reading again from the NIV. Here's what it reads, starting with verse 1. The people of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, Ahaziah, sorry, I apologize, Jehoram's youngest son, king in his place since the raiders who came with the Arabs into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah and granddaughter of Omri. So if you know what's coming or if you have any kind of thought of what's coming, you can almost hear the downbeats of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, right? The dun, 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 right? A few months after his coronation, Ahaziah is killed in battle. Now, that's not really a problem because Ahaziah had sons and nephews all over the palace, right? But they are all young and powerless. So the person closest to power was his mom. Athalia, okay? Now, you got to remember, she is not Jewish. She's the daughter of Jezebel, okay? She is not a worshiper of Jehovah and because she worships, worships Baal, okay? This is when Satan launches strategic initiative, okay? Let's read on starting uh, verse 10. It says, when Athalia, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, listen to what she does. She proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. So the king is dead. His descendants are dead, right? Jehoram's dead. Uh, uh, yeah, Jehoram's dead. All his descendants are now dead. So the David line is dead, and with it, all hopes for a Messiah. So Baal has triumphed. Satan has won. So friends, this is the bad news, right? All was dark. All hope was lost. For seven years, Judah lived under the rulership of a foreign queen, worshiping a foreign god. She was kind of like the, the COVID-19 of her day, right? Or the economy of her day, or the whatever you want to call it of her day, right? If you've lost your job, think about this. If you've ever lost your job, you know how they felt. If you're depressed or frustrated or irritated or angry at anything that's going on in this world right now, you know, you know how they felt, okay? The person in charge of their state, their nation, has driven a stake through the heart of all their hopes. Do you know that God is really good at situations like this? Do you guys know that? Do you know that God is really good at situations like this, right? Let's watch the uh, or listen to the story unfold. Second Chronicles chapter 22, starting with verse 11, okay? But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Because Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram, and wife of the priest Jehodiah, was Ahaziah's sister. She hid the child from Athaliah so she could not kill him. 
He remained hidden with them at the temple of God for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. Let's continue into chapter 23. In the seventh year of Jehodiah showed his strength. He made a covenant with the commanders of units of a hundred. Azariah, son of Jehoram, Ishmael, son of Jehonahan, uh, Azariah, son of Obed, Messiah, son of Adiah, and Elishaphat, son of Zikari, they went through Judah and gathered the Levites and the heads of Israelites, families from all the towns. Okay, When they came to Jerusalem, the whole assembly made a covenant with the king at the temple of God. Jehodiah said to them, The king's son shall reign as the Lord promised concerning the descendants of David. Okay, Now let's move all the way to starting with uh, verse 12. Here's what it says. We're 2 Chronicles chapter 23, verse 12. When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and cheering the king, she went to them at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance. The officers and the trumpeteers were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and musicians with their instruments were leading the praises. Then Athaliah tore her robes and shouted, Treason! Treason! Jehodiah the priest sent out the commanders of units of a hundred who were in charge of the troops and said to them, bring her out between the ranks and put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest had said, do not put her to death at the temple of the Lord. So they seized her as she reached the entrance of the horse gate on the palace grounds, and there they put her to death. It's triumph, right? Because we had the forces of darkness seem to be out of control, Okay. They were, or I should say, they were in control. Satan had won. Good was defeated. Evil had overcome. But what seems and what is aren't always the same, right? Friends, the God of the Bible is the God of good news. He's the God of rescue. He's the God of the living hope. He's the God of the second chance. He's the God of the comeback. With him, there is always a way out of darkness. Dreams of a Messiah were dead. And then there was a resurrection. Sorrow may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So talk about rejoicing. Let's read on, starting with verse 16. Jehodiah then made a covenant that he, the people, and the king would be the Lord's people. All the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols and killed Matin, the priest of Baal, in front of all the altars. Then Jehodiah placed the oversight of the temple of the Lord in the hands of Levitical priests, to whom David had made assignments in the temple, to present the burnt offerings of the Lord as written in the law of Moses. With rejoicing and singing as David had ordered, he also stationed gatekeepers at the gates of the Lord's temple so that no one who was in in any way unclean might enter. He took with him the commanders of hundreds, the nobles, the rulers of the people, and all the people of the land, and brought the king down from the temple of the Lord. They went into the palace through the upper gate and seated the king on the royal throne. All the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was calm because Athaliah had been slain with the sword. So what Israel is doing, he's recounting Israel's history, right? That's what we've been talking about, Israel's history so that we can learn lessons during our time in, in our history, right? And so that's what I want to uh, give you, is two lessons today 
on our time in history that we can learn from Ezra, okay? Ezra is letting us know in lesson one, which is our first one, is that there is a war in heaven that is playing out on earth. Listen to that. There is a war in heaven that is playing out on earth. The war is more is more real than World War One, World War Two, uh, Vietnam, Korea, uh, Kuwait, Iraqi, the war in Russia, the Ura- Russian Ukraine, everything. Okay, the, this war is more real than all of that. Okay, because of why? Well, Ephesians six twelve describes it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Which might explain why you're feeling the way you're feeling these days. What you're feeling isn't just about a, a virus or, or injustice or the economy or, or presidential candidates or gas prices, okay? Something deeper is going on in our world every day. Ephesians 6.12 is followed by Ephesians 6.13, which says this, For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist the evil day. The armor of God is faith, hope, righteousness, the truth of salvation, God's word, and the Holy Spirit. Stand firm in those, my friends. Trust God and believe what he says. Now, I think a lot of us believe what he says, but what I'm about to say next is what we struggle with. We know to trust God and believe what he says. But we also need to do what he says. We struggle with that, don't we? Because if it doesn't match up to what we want to do, we struggle doing what he says to do. And there's a lot of what scripture says we should be doing that we as a society, we as a nation, we as individuals are not doing because we're worried about offending somebody else or our family or even ourselves, okay? We have to do what he says and believe what he says, right? Ezra is teaching us that God always has plans, and those plans are to build up and not tear down. He is also letting us know that Satan also always has plans, and those plans are always to tear down and not to build up, right? Ezra is teaching us that God always wins, God always wins. The Thalias of our world may rule for a while, but never forever, okay? Weeping may remain for a night, but joy is coming in the morning, and morning is coming, okay? And so that's the vertical lesson of our our story. It explains the spiritual dimension of our condition. You know, it's from me, uh, from us to God, so that's vertical, right? And, and, And why it all seems so much worse than it actually is, right? That's what he's talking about. On the horizontal plane, Ezra is teaching us our second lesson, and that is this. Success is determined by the company you keep. Let me say that one again. Success is determined by the company you keep. Don't miss this lesson. Jehoshaphat endangered the generations which followed by building an alliance with a Baal worshiper. He didn't know he was doing it. It seemed innocent to him at the time, right? And this may be why God spells it out so clear in the New Testament when he says, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? 
What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or, or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does a temple of God have with idols? All that comes from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. He's telling us that, you know, things do not mix. Some things are like uh, oil and water, right? Okay, they just don't mix well. On a practical level, Ezra is telling us that we need to be careful who we marry. You don't just marry a, a body, right? Some people do. I mean, some people, that's what their marriage is based on. Oh, we both look good, so let's marry each other, right? But we also know that we marry a mind, right? Each individual has a mind, their own mind. You marry their beliefs. You marry their value systems, right? You should all understand all that before we just marry somebody. Because you also don't just marry a person. You marry into their family. Okay? So when Jehoram got Athaliah, or Athaliah, however you pronounce that, okay, he also got Jezebel. Right? He also got Jezebel. And her, all of her ball-worshipping priests and, and, and other people, right? And all the evil that went with them. He's also encouraging us to always have a mentor. The story of young King Joash is that young King Joash did well. He really did. He did well and walked with the Lord as long as he had the priest Jehodiah at his side. Our story ends with 2 Chronicles 24 saying this, Jehodiah died when he was old and full of days. He was 130 years old at his death. He was buried in the city of David with the kings because he had done what was good in Israel with respect to God and his temples. That's from chapter 24, 15 through 16. Remember, Jehodiah was the priest. He wasn't a king. Joseph made an alliance. As a result of that alliance, the lineage of David and the promise of Messiah were almost wiped out. Satan is always working to defeat God's plan, but he never succeeds. The story of Joash is the story of triumph from ashes. It's the story of a revival. It's a revival. Same as we've been talking about for the last five weeks. It's a story of revival. It's also the story of two unsung heroes who were not kings. One was a rescuer named Jehoshabeth, the other a mentor named Jehodiah. By the way, they happen to be married to each other. You see, everyone needs a rescuer at some time, and everyone needs a mentor at all times. This is the story of the war in heaven and of relationships on earth. And the moral of the story is this. God always wins. God always wins. So here's what we learned from this morning. Stay close to him and you will win too. Amen. This concludes another episode of Venture Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We hope you'll join us next week as we conclude our series on revival stronger than ever. We'll talk to you soon. If you'd like to know more about Venture Podcast and Venture Ministries, or you'd like to help support us financially, please visit us at venturechurch.ch.